we think about, you know, we know we're supposed to have positive attitude and, you know, write down our goals and we, you know, these things like meditate, like, you know, these things. Um, but for me, the understanding of the biology of the emotions was pivotal for me to doing the work. And then when I, when you do the work, all the good things happen. You're listening to The Real Estate Sessions. I'm your host, Bill Risser. Listen in as I interview leaders in our industry, getting their stories and their journeys to the world of real estate. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 249 of The Real Estate Sessions podcast. This is my first episode of season six of The Real Estate Sessions and very excited to continue on this path and really could not have a better guest to kick off season six. This is uh, His name is Mike Simonson. He's the CEO of Altos Research, uh, a, a data company that has a very interesting backstory and in how, it, how it became uh, really the leader in this hyper-local data uh, and also some other great big enterprise stuff as well. They've been around now, I think, 14 years. But Mike's an amazing guy. He's doing some great stuff outside of his company as well. We're going to talk about all of that. So let's get this thing started. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Bill, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's so it's so cool. You know, you and I have met a, a couple of times, not had long, deep conversations, but I'll never forget we were in San Diego. Jeff Turner had a a, a sweet Airbnb Airbnb pad up in kind of towards uh, Little Italy, and I remember walking in there, and it was you and Jeff and Heather, and it's just this brain trust of people. And I was like, I'm just going to hang out here. This is going to be cool. Ah, oh, that's great. <laughs> yes, exactly. Those those were the the early days of uh, social media and getting uh, you know working our whole uh, new marketing system. You know, the whole environment was changing. Yeah, it it was really cool to to see all that stuff happening and and uh, and then I've run into you. I think it's just an in the last maybe a year ago, and so I, I asked you then, hey, can I get you on the show? And you agreed, so I'm really happy to have you here. I always start every podcast with with I want to find out your backstory, right? Everybody can find out about Altos Research and all the cool stuff you're doing at the company, but I want to find out a little bit uh, more about you. Uh, childhood was you're born just outside of Chicago. That's correct. Yep. So let's talk about, um, you know, what that, what that's like, you know, growing up, I, I always think when I think Chicago, I think, first of all, you got to be there Cubs or White Sox. There's just no choice. Yep. You got to well, be a Bears fan or, or you're in a lot of trouble. That's that right. right. <laughs> so kind of tell me about, tell me about growing up there. So, uh, yeah. So Cubs, Bears, the, uh, you know, as a kid, a little bit of White Sox in the eighties, but, but, you know, ended up gravitating <laughs> to the Cubs. So growing up in suburban Chicago. So. Um, you know, simple suburban middle class life. Uh, my dad was a high school teacher. You know, possibly now the 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 one of the most uh, interesting things about that upbringing was that my mother started her company in the seventies, and so she was a, a an entrepreneur in the in the nineteen seventies, and you know, built a built her company. She was doing. Um, individual career development work with individuals and grew it into HR consulting and worked with big corporations over the years and wrote books. And, and, uh, and so, you know, that was, uh, you know, a, a lot of, of where my entrepreneurial spirit came from. 
So look, talk about an entrepreneur like ahead of her time. I mean, there weren't a whole lot of women entrepreneurs building companies operations in the 70s. No, that's very true. And and yeah. she was uh, sort of an accidental entrepreneur. You know, she was working with uh, women who were like recently divorced and needing to get back into the workforce you know, people who'd never had jobs before, some of those things that were happening in the 70s. Um, and she had originally started in like nonprofit roles with like government sponsored programs, things like that. Um, she'd done adult education work. Her graduate work was, you know, an educational psychology kind of thing. And, th- and then there came a time when it, she, the, whatever the, the government programs ran out and she had to develop it on her own. And she had an accountant. She said, I'm, I think I'm going to set up a nonprofit. And the accountant said, why do a nonprofit? It's just as much work and you don't get to make any money. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so she started a company and wow. you know, built it slowly over the years. You know, your career path, you, you obviously, we, we, we'll go back through your college years and what you did in Silicon Valley. Can I just make the assumption that in high school, that you were kind of a geek maybe or a nerd. I don't know which way you want to go with it, but tech was heavy in your life pretty early, right? Uh, yeah. So I was, uh, you know, I started playing around writing software at 10 kind of thing. So okay, that, gotcha. it was always in the future for me. Yeah. You knew it was coming, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you end up, um, you end up not sticking around the Chicagoland area to go to school. This was probably like most children. I want to go someplace different. I want to see a different part of the country. Am I come? Am I beating down the going down the right path? Yeah, for sure. I was um, actually I was an athlete. I was a skier, and both my parents were skiers. Uh, so I ski raced my my whole life, and then to in, to race ski race in college. There's a few places that that you can go, not that many, and uh, and I didn't want to go to Vermont, so <laughs> I went, so I went west, and and I ended up in you know in, in Reno Tahoe. So you're you're University of Nevada Reno, and I can't imagine how much fun it was. First of all, it's not like super; it's a kind of a, a little bit of a hike from school up into the slopes, right? About uh, Forty five minutes to an yeah, hour. Yeah, I mean, it's an hour. Yeah. It's it's not that bad. Yeah. It's, okay. It's it's really good. And so, where did you ski growing up in Chicago? Well, so so both of my folks were skiers, and and my dad was a ski patroller, and my mom was an instructor, um, and and uh, for a while in the seventies and eighties, my dad ran the national ski patrol as one of the executives in the national ski patrol on a volunteer basis. And so, um, so we grew up skiing in, in Wisconsin and we would go up at, you know, every Saturday and Sunday and all winter long as a kid. And that's what we did. Okay. And, uh, and then, you know, we'd had friends in Colorado and stuff. We'd go out and do a week or so, you know, spring breaks and stuff out there and do, you know, big mountain skiing and, and those yeah. kind of things. But it was, and then of course you grew up skiing in Wisconsin and there's nothing else to do. So you grew up racing and that's, that's what you do. Um, you still ski today? I do for sure. Yeah. 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 So, and yeah you have a family. So you, you're, you have a daughter, right? I do. My daughter. Is she skiing or snowboarding? She's, What's the a, difference? she's a skier and, uh, oh. yeah. And so we, uh, and I still have, you know, I have a place in Tahoe and we get to, spend a lot of time in the mountains and, and want to count them as little victories as a parent, right? Like parenting that you do. And I managed to get her to be really good at skiing before she 
you know, considered or had friend realized she had friends who might be snowboarders. Mm-hmm. And so now when you're, you know, you're a 12 year old girl and you're really good at skiing, yeah. you don't want to be a beginner snowboarder again. That is parenting one-on-one. I love that. Right. Yeah. Good, good call dad. Um, <laughs> so uh, after school there, you end up, you end up uh, going back to Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. To get your MBA. Yep. And I, lo- I love the, I love what the MBA focus is. Tell us what that, what the focus of your MBA at DePaul. It was entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, and, uh, and in fact, I went back and I went back to Chicago because I was also writing software for my mom's company at the time. So I started when I was in undergrad, I, I started writing software for her company. I probably would have stayed in California, except that, you know, like I've got a you know, like we were doing cool stuff. So I went back to Chicago and worked on, uh, you know, on, with her for a few years and did grad school. And so obviously built, built up your skills and now, but you're, but California comes calling and back you go. So Definitely. you go back to Silicon Valley. Um, let's talk about that time, you know, and it had to be super exciting. We're talking right about 2000. Yeah. 99, January 99, two bubbles ago. Right. Like it was, that's how I describe it. Like two bubbles ago and it was uh, like, it was super exciting to be in Silicon Valley in the late nineties. There was amazing stuff happening. The world was changing. The beautiful core ethos of Silicon Valley was really rich and alive and well. And, and, uh, and, and I just, you know, I was super excited to go uh, to be a part of it. And, and so, yeah, so we came out in, in 99 back out came back to California for the last time, you know, 21, 22 years ago now. Yeah. What'd you do when you first got here? I, you know, I started working for a company um, that uh, was called Vital Sign Software. Did networking software, like, you know, in the computer network and are they performing well? And, and, uh, and, and uh, there were a few things that, of that, that team and that company and that product that, have stuck with me for a long time. And, you know, I do data software now with Altos and there are elements of what we do in Altos research that I, you know, picked up from that product that we had at Vital Science. And um, the other thing that stuck with me there was there was a, the founder CEO of that company, a remarkable guy named Jim Getz, went on to be a venture capitalist and, you know, sold Vital Signs and so, and, and he, there were some really amazing leadership lessons from Jim. And for a while, Jim was, Jim, Jim, for example, was the only venture capital investor in WhatsApp. And WhatsApp wow. and sold that to Facebook for $20 billion. He's the Way only. Way to go, Jim. Yeah. Like, he's a neat guy, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, was, cool. it was really interesting. So I, um, and, and then I, you know, learned a lot of lessons about how he ran his team. And there, you know, the, and how we led product. And so there was a ton of stuff going on in there. That was really, really, really great. Last lifetime. It seems, it seems unique to me and maybe, maybe I'm way out of place with this um, take, but that the fact that you have this entrepreneurial drive, you know, you, you knew you were going to probably own your own company and start something, even when you were first arriving there. And, and even while you're in school, you knew it. 
but you're also super techie coder, data scientist, kind of a guy, this whole thing going on. And I thought that those didn't work together very well, that sometimes someone wired for that tech side doesn't tend to be thinking bigger. They want to just, I mean, they, they think big, but in a different way. The greatest Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have, have both. They uh, are builders and they can sell and they also have the technical skills. And frankly, compared to those guys, I don't have any technical skill compared to the real, to the real power, you know, people. Okay. And, um, I have, um, I probably don't have any sales skills either compared to the real power. You, know, <laughs> you think about that. Um, but, uh, but really, so it's something that I've been able to do reasonably well over my career is, uh, lead a product from a technical standpoint and from a, you know, a vision, um, in like information architecture standpoint, but also be perfectly happy at being in front of, um, you know, customers and, and reasonably competent at marketing and, and communications and, and sales, the sales process. If that, if that's something that, uh, all parents could pass on to their children, right. The ability to be comfortable in multiple places. I mean, that is, that is, that is the, the secret to success, I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's uh, a lot of things, a lot of lessons you can learn at, you know, really great, well-run Silicon Valley companies over the years. There are uh, people who are highly skilled salespeople who are not technical at all. And they're perfectly okay with that. Right. They, they don't need to be. Um, and there, but, and there are uh, technical people who are perfectly happy to be in front of uh, you know, in, in building product and developing technology and, and it's okay to develop those skills out, but there's sort of a, a Silicon Valley saying that, you know, that the higher you go in an organization, ultimately it's all sales. Mm. And so, you know, the really great ones develop both sides of the skills. Yeah. I, I love that. I just find that so, find that so fascinating. So you, you I've, I've read this story in a couple of places and I, I saw you talk about this on a couple other shows. I love how you get to the world of real estate. So I'll just leave it at that. And can you share how that came about? Yeah. Well, so, you know, we're here in Silicon Valley and, and, you know, I'm 30 years old and you want to buy a house and, you know, a good neighborhood kind of thing. So you, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you're 30 years old and you got a million dollar mortgage. And in a lot of the country, you get a million dollar mortgage. Now, this is 20 years ago. A million dollar mortgage right now is is not that uncommon. But, but uh, you know, it's 20 years ago. So I don't remember what the interest rate was, but, it, you know, 7% or something like that. Sure. And yeah. in Silicon Valley, that's a at the time is a 50 year old house, a three bedroom, one bath that has not been updated since the seventies. And wow. so you buy this house with this giant mortgage and, and, and now of course that's a 70 year old house. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it's it, not getting any better. <laughs> it's not getting any better. Right. Um, and so, you know, you, you end up in this environment and then the bottom falls out of the NASDAQ bubble. And, and in fact, we actually bought our home after the peak of the bubble. Like we knew it and 
uh, you know, because at that point, one of the things that was happening was that finally listings and information about what's for sale have been, were transitioning to be online. Mm-hmm. So before that point, you had to know that guy with the book and he's got his little printout from the MLS and like nobody knows anything, right? No, you, you know that the best agents know their market really well and they can tell you all these things, but as a consumer, you have nothing. And, and so all of a sudden this information is there and, and I'm in the information business. And so I start learning and, you know, we were able actually to make a really good offer, a lowball offer on a, on this house in a world where, Nobody had lowball offers for a decade, right? And so, um, you know, we actually got a reasonably good deal. But then, of course, the NASDAQ bubble continues to blow up. And, and like, the, the, the NASDAQ fell, like, 25% on the day I got married. Like, you know? <laughs> so, so then... Uh, all this stuff is happening. I know that I'm beginning to have more information about what's going on than than anybody, most people. And so I actually started building just little models, uh, databases for my own understanding of what was happening in the local market because I needed to know what was going on. And, and there were some really interesting early observations. One was that in 2002 and 2003, the median home price in Los Altos, California, fell by a third. Wow. Like, by a third. Yeah. Uh, what was interesting is that the low end of the market, where, where I had bought, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go down at all. It was mm. these two, three, four million dollar NASDAQ stock option homes that just cratered. But in 2003, if you remember, you could still get a million dollar mortgage and, you know, people weren't even asking any questions about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, and especially in, in this town, like it was, you know, common. And so one of the things I started doing was a lesson from my vital sign software days, which is you look at the market. We look at the market at Altos in four price range segments, quartiles, because the high end of the market may be behaving very differently from the low end. And in 2003 in Los Altos, that's exactly what was happening. And, and we did it in the networking software because there were, you know, we, you know, like I, I was like, oh, I'm going to use that technique. And, and so it was really useful. Now at the company at Altos, we, we look at every zip code in the country, every zip, city, state, nationally, and break everything always into four price range segments so that you can always tell that the high end of the market is doing very differently from the low end. And the high end in Los Altos is very different from you know, the high end in, in whatever, uh, you know, Glendale, Arizona, right. And so they all have their own, they all have their own little things. And so that was a function of what I did at the time. And I, and I was able to say, wow, my house is totally fine. Even though median home price fell by a third. Yeah. My house is fine. I still have the cheap house. This is, this is 2006. You start Altos research, right? Yeah, but I I started building the data years before on my personal, you know, for that need. And then, so then it's 2004, 2005, and now I start realizing I have more information than anybody has. 
And I have, you, you could tell, you know, at the time you'd look at the newspaper and once a quarter they would print the little zip code map and this one's up and this one's down. And, you know, and, and my little zip code was a, was an NA. There were zero transactions in the little window they looked and they go, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> and but I, you know, I could tell you exactly there's 60 homes on the market. They're like, uh, you know, and they're priced here. This many have taken a price cut. Like I could tell you exactly what's going on. And, um, and so that was a time when I, when I started realizing that I have more information than, than anybody else had, um, with the exception of maybe, you know, some realtors who've been in it for a long time who had their own system, like they knew it in their guts, but they didn't know anything. So, uh, and that's when we decided to start, you know, commercializing the data and, and turn it into a company. I always wonder about this with a start. Was there like one customer or client that, you know, was a bigger like sale where you went, we're on to something here? Or was it a little bit, a lot of little things? That uh, no, there, there were a few things. I, a couple of great stories on that. Um, one of which, before I'd started, one of the other catalysts for starting, there was a company called economy.com. It's now owned by Moody's uh, and it was a forecasting company and they sold they sold economic forecasting products and consulting and things like that. And they had a they had a real estate thing, outlook thing that they did. And they published on tens of thousands of dollars a year. They would publish they sell this to corporate clients. And I remember reading one and it was probably, I think it was maybe 2005, 2004, something something like that. And and it was in July, and they said the Silicon Valley real estate market is going to crash. And I'm looking around, and it's July of that year, and it's on fire. It's just skyrocketing. And I, you dive in, and they had sourced data in like January and February. They'd written their report in March and April. They published it in May. It's June. I'm reading this thing. And the data they were looking at was like, you know, months of inventory and a few things like that that are sort of normal things to look at. But they were, it was six months old mm. and it was totally wrong. And again, I was like, yeah, like I have Friday. Like, <laughs> like, I know exactly where the market is. And so, so I'm like, you know, people are paying these guys tens of thousands of dollars for this information. And I'm way better. Like, I'm, and I don't, you know, and who am I? But I'm, way better. So that was a big catalyst for me saying there's a business here that people right. pay a lot of money for. Uh, yeah. And then I, I remember doing things like um, uh, I didn't know anybody in the industry. Uh, so I didn't have any contacts. And, and so I just started talking to people and people go, oh, you should talk to my realtor. He's a data guy, you know, and, and they, I'd have those conversations. I'd go and yeah. I'd sit down with them. And uh, I have, there's a few folks who were very early in that conversation, some of whom are still clients today. And, but I remember I sat down, there's a, there was a brokerage in San Francisco called Paragon, who is now acquired in YouTube somewhere. It's probably part of Compass now, but <laughs> along, you know, several acquisitions in. Probably, um, yeah. Uh, but they, but they are, they, and I sat down with the VP marketing, who was just, you know, an introduction to the network. And he, and I'm saying, here's what we're doing. We've got market data. We're helping agents reach their clients. You know, we're. We have better signal here. You, you, there's, you know, clients have these questions. Here's what we do. It's good lead gen. It's good lead follow up. You, you know, this is how you can. And he said, Mike, you know, these agents they get their gold by mining their Rolodex. 
they get more data than they know what to do with. They don't, they don't need anything. And so I thought, okay, good information. This guy's not my customer, and, but I'm learning because I don't even know. I don't know anything at the time. I don't know, you know, what does a broker really do? Like, how does, I don't know anything. You know, I yeah. bought two homes in my life. Right. And so I'm just making friends and I'm asking questions. And, and so then we're in the call. And I keep asking questions. I'm learning about the business. And he gets a call. In his, we're sitting in his office in San Francisco and he gets a call from clearly as it was an agent. And he says, yeah, Katie, I know I'll get you those numbers. I'll get you the data. Uh, you know, I, I know, I know you want, I like it. And, and I thought hmm, that's interesting. And I, but I didn't ask him about it. I didn't, you know, I didn't let him have his private phone call. Uh, and then as we wrapped up the conversation, I go, hey, just one last question. You know, this Katie calls you in the middle and she was asking for data, obviously asking for data. What do you use for data? Right? Like you you have a system, you have software. What are you using now? He goes, I'm just like copying and pasting into Excel. And he goes, wait a minute, how much is your stuff? And like that, all of a sudden he's a customer. He's my first broker customer. And, and uh, it was... It was really fascinating, but it took that call in the middle of our conversation. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm onto something. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. That's cool. What does your mix of customers look like today? Because I, I know you have a wide range. It's not just realtors and brokers. Right? That's right. Um, about we, we do about half the company is, is an enterprise data business. Mm-hmm. So um, the companies doing valuations or building tech systems with real estate so um, that are want to build market data into their technology are there or doing things like uh, you know the AVM so like building you know home valuation things uh, so that's our enterprise data business about half of our our business uh, a lot of big names that you know use our data uh, and then Half of the business is the realtors, brokers, a lot of title companies, uh, and where it's about, it's a more of a consumer level, reaching people with the data every week. Uh, you know, it's about um, helping reach new people, so leads in the top of your funnel, and then connecting with folks over time because. People want to know what's going on and everybody has an opinion about the real estate market. And then it's also about closing business. So it's a, it's half and half that way. And a lot of that, you know, and a lot of that is like uh, in the, in the title insurance business too, for reaching agents. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally get that. Uh, we, we will, we'll probably have a conversation after this podcast is done. Um, let's, let's, let's talk about a couple of things I thought I found just fascinating, you know, looking at your story and, you know, first of all, I want you to talk to, and to let the listeners know about the entrepreneurs organization. That's yeah. the name of it. Now it doesn't, it sounds like two words that don't go together. It's just weird, but the entrepreneurs organization, which That's is, right. I don't know. Yeah. Which should talk about that, how you join that. I know you're, I think you're currently the president. I right? just finished my term as the president. Yeah. But it's uh, the entrepreneurs organization. You call it EO. If you like EO is a, it's a global network of entrepreneurs, uh, about 15,000 of us around the world. It's ultimately, it's a learning organization. It's a deep dive, confidential, uh, and personal development. So when you're an entrepreneur, you face 
a lot of things that are super that are hard to discuss with people who aren't entrepreneurs uh and or it's you know if you're worried about making payroll you can't discuss that with your team right you can't no so you know so you know or you're trying to figure out uh or sometimes you can't even discuss that with your spouse right because your spouse is you can't burden them with that they're, they're worried about all the other. So, so the entrepreneur organ, entrepreneurs organization is a place where, uh, as as people who have founded and lead companies, can do this deep dive thing. It's the confidentiality is really cool because you get placed into small groups, uh, ten people or so, none of whom are in your industry or in your you know you don't do business with any of them there's no and and so now you're in this case where like i'm in a group with you know an architect and a wine import business and a robotics you know software company and like you know all these different things um and so now i can be in this group and and i can say anything about my deepest fears or and and so because you have this it's super confidential and you have this environment it's highly structured so you have a you have this environment where you get to go work through these things and so so many of us who are entrepreneurs you know, desperately need these kinds of environments um, right. and so uh, it's been transformational my membership in the group has been tra- i've had transformational personal transformation moments several times over the years and uh, both both with my personal life as well as my company. It's not just about running the company. It's about myself as a human. And uh, so I've had, and, and then, so because I, I appreciate it so much and I, I just love the network and the organization, uh, I, I was president of the San Francisco chapter. So there's a hundred of us in San Francisco. And, and uh, it was really a remarkable experience for me this year, getting to lead and, you know, learn from, really neat people who who go build big companies it's cool you also are going down a path of not only leading and learning but teaching and i i want to talk about the uh, hack happiness project because yeah. i found this fascinating in fact i shared um part of the philosophy of positivity with my wife mm-hmm. and she was blown away she said that is the answer that is everything right oh. goals and positivity um, so talk about, first of all, I've heard you talk about this before. you talk about the white paper you wrote? No, yep. you wrote like a 67 page treatment. This, this is not a white paper. I thought a white paper was one or two pages. I, I guess I just did. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's now a couple hundred pages into the book. So I'm all like the, in, I'm working with, a, with the editors right now and de- doing the development. So it, like I can actually publish it as a book and that's nice. a lot of work too, that, that, um, but, but <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm on it. Uh, but yeah, so hacking happiness is a is a process that I went through personal transformation time. It actually has its roots in my EO group. We all go through these times where you you find yourself in crisis mode, and maybe you're depressed or you're down. Like in and and for me, that time was 2017. Um, I had the company for 11 years and I was deeply uninspired. And when you're deeply uninspired, you know, I'd spent 
three years rewriting our software. And so, like, you know, like all the, we just, blah. Um, and then, of course, when you're in that space, then you don't do things like, pick up, you don't do like, hey, yes, let's do your podcast. Or, hey, let's pick up the phone and do, like, you don't do these things. And then, you know, so it's, it becomes a negative spiral. And I had to make a transition. I had to fix things. Uh, and so hacking happiness is really the observation that we can be purposeful in our internal chemistry. Uh, in particular, I, I focus on four neurotransmitters, four horm hormones, that we can be purposeful. We can adjust these four neurotransmitters with perfect hacks, perfect purposeful actions yeah. to create emotional condition, the emotional conditions that result in success. Uh, that, that we think about, you know, we know we're supposed to have positive attitude and, you know, write down our goals and we, you know, these they like meditate, like, you know, these things. Um, but for me, the understanding of the biology of the emotions was pivotal for me to doing the work. And then when I, when you do the work, all the good things happen. And so all of a sudden, 2018 is remarkably amazing for me as a human, as a company, uh, 2019. Is, and, and even through the crisis time in 2020 has been uh, like, like I've been able to keep myself in a really, like a really amazing learning, growing space. And I think it helps me keep an, an attitude so that I can help the people around me as well. Yeah. Do you mind sharing the, uh, the philosophy about maybe why being goal driven isn't so such a good thing? I mean, yeah. it has to be there to an extent, but I mean, the way we measure. Yeah. So, so the four, I'll start with the four hormones. The four hormones that I focus on are serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine, and cortisol. Serotonin is the anchor chemical of our happiness. So when we're joyful and having a great time, and we're good at our work, and we're confident. That's serotonin. And literally, when you when you think about it, when you're doing those things, your serotonin is rising in your body, and and also when your serotonin is rising, you're feeling those things. So it's the biology of our emotions. Oxytocin is the uh, is the love chemical. So when we're expressing love, like I love you, Bill, that's a, an expression of oxytocin. You know, what's interesting is that having things like oxytocin high also has measurable implications like I am a faster problem solver when my oxytocin is high. Like humans solve problems faster when they're when the oxytocin is high. Um, dopamine is the reward chemical. So dopamine is like, you know, you win the game or, you know, you get the score, you close the deal, you set your goals. And because you set your goals, you go hit you know, you go hit your goals, then that's dopamine. That's why, why setting goals and hitting goals feels good is because right. you get a little dopamine reward. And the last one is cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone. And so anger and fear and, you know, uh, all the, the negative energy is, a, is an expression of cortisol. So hacking happiness is let's keep the three high serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine, and we drop the cortisol down low. And that's our that's our powerful magnetic charismatic state. When we are in that state, that's when all of a sudden, you know, people come to you and go, Hey, Bill, uh, I got a cool project for you. 
right? I have like, or yes, let's do business, you know, because we're in this space. So back to your question about goal setting. So it, with most of our life in modern world, in our modern world, we, we are, we are in a dopamine cortisol cycle. Dopamine is based on reward. Every time you get a little red bubble on the phone, that's dopamine. Every time you, you know, you know, when you pick up the phone and you open your email app because it feels like you're working, that's because you're, the, it, the phone is giving you dopamine. It's like, oh, I should be doing this. Yeah. The problem is that if we just focus on dopamine, dopamine's fleeting. It goes away super fast. It's, it's half-life in our blood is like two minutes up down. And so if we just focus on dopamine, then we we miss the purposefulness and the love of serotonin and oxytocin. And we miss the benefits of those things. So we we get in this dopamine cortisol cycle where we're in traffic and the you know we got voicemails and deadlines and these things are all tr- tr- driving cortisol. And so we get it, it, it becomes hollow and, and it becomes uninspiring. And, you know, you, you, you probably know, especially in real estate, like we know tons of people who are like, you know, I sell a lot of houses and I am miserable. Yep. Right. And, and so they can go get their dopamine reward. They know how to work their systems and get, you know, make a living, but man, they're not happy about it. And, and so this is the, that's the, the big realization that that I had is I, I had to focus on my serotonin and my oxytocin so that I could lift myself to that whole new level of performance. Now hitting the dopamine, now it's rocket fuel. Now it's those times when you know when setting the goals is like amazing and and you you go hit it and the team is running for it. That's because the team has this foundation of serotonin. Then they can go hit the do- the dopamine goals. If it's just about the dopamine it's it it's super uninspiring very quickly and and then you just get stuck you miss your goal and now even looking at the plan is an exercise in cortisol <laughs> like it's a, like even looking <laughs> well, at the plan straight like, down yeah, straight exactly. down yeah exactly that's great so that's the, the framework so I can't wait for the book to come out. That's going to be awesome. I might have to have you back on. We'll just talk about the book. That'd be I great. Uh, <laughs> so like I've had you well past the time I've asked of your time. And I want to, I always ask the same question at the end of every show, all 246 episodes before yours. And that is, if you could give one piece of advice to a brand new real estate agent, what would it be? Um, let's see. One piece of advice to a brand new real estate agent. I am absolutely certain that the personal aspect of the real estate transaction is here forever. It is a uh, it, it is the reason that you see a lot of tech companies come in and in discount. It's like their first thing is like, oh, we're gonna get rid of the real estate agent. And then they grow. When they grow over time, they realize that what humans want is most of us want a high service transaction. Like they, like we want handholding. We want pick up the papers for me, or like, hey, oh, I'm I'm looking at this one. Do I sign here? They, like whatever the things are. Like there's all kinds of nuance in there that we we appreciate and we want to pay for. And so, so I am convinced that, that, that power, 
that that connection, that that real expert guidance of the real estate agent is we're here for a long time. So develop that. Mike, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, at altosresearch.com. That's the website. Uh, altos is A-L-T-O-S, altosresearch.com. And just, you know, Mike at for email or stop by and check out if they want to check out products or, you know, whatever. That's, uh, that's great. Or, you know, on the social media as well. Mike Simonson. Awesome. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I knew I was going to have a great time talking to you. Um, your passion is like it's pouring out of you. I hope you realize that. It's been very fun to 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 watch some of the other things you've been doing recently. Thank it's you. Super cool. So continued thank success. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. My serotonin is very high right now because of the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. To leave a review or rating, go to ratethispodcast.com slash RE Sessions. You can also subscribe to the podcast at your favorite podcast listening app. Finally, you can go to the realestatesessions.com and subscribe to our email newsletter and be notified whenever a new episode is released. Hey.